recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink. This is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, November 2nd, 2013. It'll be just a few weeks, and I'll be doing, um, I don't know, I'm thinking about doing something for it. I'll be, it'll be five years that I've been having done this. I don't know if, um, I, it's passed awfully quickly. I think that um, the first two years, even though they did bear some fruit, I think they could have been a lot better, and, and the people that have been following me for five years will know what I mean. I pray, Yahweh, I could do this for 25 more years. I think it needs to be done. And um, I also pray, and I'm not beating my chest or anything, but I also pray that I'm, I'm the guy that should be doing it. Christian identity needs a scholarly academic foundation without the politics, without the bullshit. And I'm trying to do that at Christogenia. I mean, I, I, I know the politics and the bullshit that they're on the forum. There's no doubt that there's enough of it on the forum. That's probably a good, uh, where it belongs, is relegated to forums. But my website is, um, it is blessed with a lot of traffic and good Google rankings. I didn't do it. I, I, I just put my articles up there and, and put my, um, my translations and my commentaries and, and my essays up there, and, and it does itself. Or, or, or perhaps, I, I don't, I'm, I'm trying to be humble. I, I believe we should be humble, but perhaps... It's um, Yahweh our God, who who um, he he's the one that makes things grow, right? We can only do our best to try, and all I'm trying to do is lay a solid academic background. I mean, it's not going to be perfect because I'm only a man, but a solid academic foundation for Christian identity, because Christian identity is the truth without doubt. And the, the 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 variety that we call two seed line, even though two seed line means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, and, and a lot of them are, are harebrained, a lot of people in two seed line are really dualists. They think Satan's still in heaven. In spite of Revelation chapter 12, Satan's Wait. clearly not in heaven. Satan? Around, Satan is walking around in, in patent leather shoes. Did you just say Satan is still in heaven and there are people that actually believe this? Oh, yes. There are people that believe that Satan is still in heaven. I, I mean, I had a good conversation with one of them on my website and, and, and a reply back last year. Have they ever read the Bible? <laughs> Those people are dualists. And I've been accused in some circles of being a no-devil advocate, which is absolutely crazy. I mean, read my essays. I, I haven't diverged from, from one of the... Um, if you want to call it two seed line principles in any of my essays, which I wrote 10, 12 years ago, and I, I believe that Clifton Emheiser, who, who um, has probably written more about two seed line than anybody, is um, what would be in full agreement with that. I do not teach that there's a devil in heaven, so I guess I'm, I'm a no-devil advocate in some circles, and, and that's just absolutely ignorant. That, that's my short rant for tonight. And, and um, praise Yahweh and thank you for listening. That, that's all I can say. Tonight we are going to present the fifth segment in our series, Explaining to Seed Line, 
Pragmatic Genesis, and tonight we'll be covering the rest of Genesis chapter 3 and hopefully the beginning of Genesis chapter 4 at greater length. I would like to first summarize, and, and, and once again I have Sword Brethren here to help me present this. Hello, Brian. Thank Hello. you. Thank you for being here. Wonderful. I would like to first summarize, and, and you may have some comments on this, and, and things that you feel are important that, that we've discussed in the last four programs that I may have omitted here. But I would like to first summarize what I hope we have established in the previous four segments of the series. And, and I'm going to do that in brief. If, if you feel that there's, there's anything that should be added, please be welcome. First, that there were originally, and, and the text itself proves this in Genesis 5, there were originally several separate books or scrolls of what we now know as Genesis, which is a concatenation of those original books. The early divisions are originally separate scrolls which each told various aspects of the same creation account. These early divisions, the first one is from Genesis 1-1 through Genesis 2-3, which is the original creation account. And then the second book is Genesis 2-4 through the end of Genesis chapter 4, which is the earliest history of the Adamic race, written as a parable explaining the lives of our first parents. And then the third book begins in Genesis 5-1, which is the beginning of a book of the history of their descendants, the race of Adam. To understand the parables of Genesis, as we established early on in the series, we must look at them through the words of Christ and his apostles given to us in the New Testament, as Christ said that he will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. And as Brian pointed out when we made that discussion, he said that in connection with the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew chapter 13. We hope to have established all that in the first four podcasts of this series. There's more. We hope to have, to have established that there was only one creation period of God, expressed as a single seven-day cycle, where the days are actually epochs or ages. And the seventh day is a period of rest in which God is still engaged, as we demonstrated from Hebrew chap Hebrews chapter 4. Well, each day, I'm sorry, go on. In the Matthew 13, when he said that things kept secret from the foundation of the world, I've never had a satisfactory explanation from an evangelical or anybody as to what was kept secret from the foundation of the world that is now being explained in this parable. Well, what, how about the origin of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that we don't see really explained until the epistles of Peter, Jude, and Revelation chapter 12? Right, and there's no other explanation. No other explanation is right. Each day of Genesis represents a separate episode of the creation, but it is not, as we demonstrated comparing the, the, the fourth day and the first day, it is not a chronologically correct scientific treatise, as many may suppose. 
The epitome of that creation was the creation of Adamic man. There was only one creation of Adam, and, and we did a whole podcast, the first series, the first podcast in the series, we did a whole program on that. There was only one creation of Adamic man, as the Hebrew grammar proves, and that the and the same Adam created in Genesis chapter 1 is the Adam of the accounts of Genesis chapters 2 through 4 and the account where his descendants are described from Genesis chapter 5. The account of the plural Adamic people created in Genesis chapter 1 encompasses all of these Adamic people. That Genesis 1 account is not a linear history preceding a subsequent Genesis 2 account. Rather, it is a separate account encompassing the Genesis 2 and Genesis 5 accounts. References to any creation in Genesis chapter 2 are either recollections of the Genesis 1 creation account or they are merely descriptions of the self-perpetuating flourishing of the kinds, the races, the, the, the species which Yahweh created in Genesis chapter 1, as it was described in Genesis chapter 1. We also hope to have established that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is already in the garden in Genesis chapter 2, represents the fallen angels described by Christ in the Revelation and mentioned in the Gospels and certain of the epistles of the apostles, especially the second epistle of Peter and the short epistle of Jude. The serpent of Genesis chapter 3 is a member of that race represented by this tree. It doesn't matter to me if you want to think that he's the chief angel who rebelled or not. He's a member of that race represented by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The first man, Adam, was presented with all of the animals which God had created. And he named them. And he found not a wife among them, thankfully, because the rebellion of the so-called fallen angels, as we find in the same Enoch literature which the apostles later quoted, was to corrupt the creation of God by mixing their own seed and the seed of the beasts of that creation. We asserted that the so-called non-Adamic races must have derived from the fallen angels in the same manner, as demonstrated with all clarity from statements in Jude and into Peter, and also from certain statements in some of the prophets, such as Isaiah, which we quoted. We have yet to present more information on this aspect, and it will certainly be presented in a future installment in this series, Yahweh willing which will concern demons, devils, and beasts. Therefore, in conclusion, we consider all of the so-called non-Adamic races to be branches and leaves on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because Yahweh didn't create them. And the Adamic white race are the branches and leaves on the tree of life. All of this accords with all of the eschatological teachings of Christ without exception. We also hope to have established 
that the discourse between the woman and the serpent in the garden represents a sexual episode, as it was demonstrated in a comparison here last week, of the language from Shemitic literature which was contemporary to Moses when he wrote these accounts, namely the Epic of Gilgamesh, and also from the Proverbs and other passages in the Bible where similar words, words found in Genesis chapter 3, are used as references to sexual acts. It was also demonstrated that the several passages from the epistles of Paul of Tarsus fully support this interpretation. Certain apocryphal literature, such as 4 Maccabees, was also presented which demonstrates that this interpretation is indeed found outside of the Talmud. A lot of critics to what we teach want to say, oh, that's from the Talmud. Well, 4 Maccabees is not a Talmudic book. And we have other literature which is found outside of the Talmud which supports this. And this other literature is from non-rabbinical sources, which was also temporary to the, I'm sorry, which was also contemporary, contemporary to the time of Christ. If anyone is listening to this episode first, they must know that we consider each of the previous four episodes of this series to be prerequisite to this one because those four episodes expound on everything I've just said here and more. Do you have any comments? Well, you know, just to begin, you know, I've been looking over some of the works of other identists, Compare, Swift, in regards to Genesis 3 and 3.15 and the origins of the other races. And not to, you know, pat you on the back too much, but I think your work is the most scholarly and we're fortunate to have it. And the other identity teachers, even the giants like Compare and Swift, they just really missed the mark when it comes to the origins of the other races because they, I think they were just grasping at straws. They really wanted the Bible to explain everything, so they figured they had to find some way to fit the other races in there or else the Bible might fail and they might be um, losing science-minded people where I don't see any need to try and fit the other races in the Bible. The Bible is a book for our people, kind after kind, the people made in God's image. Well, well, we have the creation accounts, and, and then we have Genesis 5.1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Hmm. From there, it's narrowed down. In Genesis 12, it's narrowed down to the descendants of Abraham. Right, so if you're not amongst the generations of Adam, you shouldn't be counted in the book of the generations of Adam. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The, to, to me, the Bible, and, and I expounded on this in my Christ Strike, in, in my Revelation series, the Bible is the book of life, the Word of God is the word of life. We're told that. His words recorded in the Bible make the Bible the book of life. At the end of, at, at the, end of the age and the judgment of God, everybody not found written into the book of life is cast into the lake of fire. The only people written in the book of life are the Adamic race. Everybody else is cast into the lake of fire, and that is in full accord with all of the eschatological teachings of Christ and the prophets. Jeremiah chapter 30, Jeremiah chapter 45, Obadiah 15 and 16, and so forth. So, so why aren't the other races written in the book of life? Why are they bad? 
How could there be bad kinds if every if all the kinds that Yahweh created are good? Why does Christ say that the kingdom of heaven is like a net, which when cast into the sea pulls up every kind of fish, and the good are taken and stored in vessels, but the bad are thrown into the fire? They're not even tossed back into the water. They're not even tossed back into the water. So they're not swimming back to Mexico. The bad are tossed into the fire to be destroyed. The goats, there, there are no goats and sheep that are crossing over from one side to the other. And the, um, the tares are not just rooted up from amongst the wheat and thrown into the woods. The tares are bundled and burned. Well, any violation, anybody who tries to take the racial message of Scripture and, and make it subjective, or to take the racial message of Scripture and kind of obfuscate it or, or fuzz the edges are only interlopers who, who are attempting to scatter the sheep because they're not gathering with Christ. Christ right. only came to the sheep. Whoever's not gathering is scattering. Absolutely. And if you're gathering anything to the sheepfold that doesn't belong there, then you're really scattering. So there's no doubt. Well, would you like to read the first six or, or the, the first seven passages, the, the first seven verses of Genesis chapter 3, up to the point where we left off? So start where we left off or go back? Well, well if you want to go back, I'm, I'm, I'm offering the opportunity. Maybe we should. So start, take it from the top then? If you will. All right. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made, and he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall surely not die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God amongst the trees of the garden. And, and I have a few things to say about that, but last week we left off with verse 7, and, and I just wanted to recap a couple of things. What we had presented last week, and, and, and well, well, I believe that we had demonstrated last week, that the first clause in verse 1 was simply only giving us the reason why the being that seduced Eve is called a serpent. That's all it's doing. From there, we see a, um, a, a poetic description of the seduction of Eve, and, and the big lie is you shall not die, and certainly the sentence for her transgression was indeed death. The, um, the Jews trick us with that lie over and over again in, in, in an allegorical sort of way, even to this very day. I mean, they're doing it now with diversity and multiculturalism is good, and it's, it, it's energizing, and it revives and improves the race, right? Right. Well, we're told the wages of sin is death, 
and yet they're convincing our people that there's no penalty, there's no problem, there's no um, health consequences, you know, use drugs, use porn, fornicate, get involved in all manner of filth. And, well, most people that get involved in all that sort of filth, they don't make it to 30. So, so the big lie, the, the, the real big lie, I mean, I know that we, we like to use this in, in connection with, um, well, well, the Jewish treachery and sur- surrounding National Socialist Germany, but the real big lie is you shall not die. That, that's the real big lie of history, that, that there's no consequences for sin, but for transgressing the word of God. Last week we described from the Epic of Gilgamesh how certain language here, your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, had everything to do with sexual seduction and sexual awakening in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Now, that, that, that's very important. That cannot be dismissed, because the Epic of Gilgamesh was a very popular story over hundreds of years up to the point and it was still being scratched into stone and clay in Assyria when Moses wrote Genesis. And it was a very popular story up until that point. And the Epic of Gilgamesh was such an enduring and lasting story that Gilgamesh is actually mentioned on two, two surviving occasions in, in the fragments that we have of what is called the Book of Giants from the Enoch literature. So that proves that the Hebrews were familiar with the Epic of Gilgamesh because it's without doubt that his name appears twice in the Enoch literature in the Book of Giants. The Enoch, not the Ethiopic Enoch literature, but the Enoch literature that was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, Western society didn't know anything, I mean modern Western society, didn't know anything about the Epic of Gilgamesh. That was lost in the sands of time way before the time of Christ, until the advent of British and German archaeology in Mesopotamia. Then we relearned all these ancient Sumerian and and Babylonian and Akkadian stories that we found carved in clay and stone. So, So the Epic of Gilgamesh is very important. The language is, it's a related Semitic language. It's in Akkadian it's in Sumerian. Sumer was the cradle of civilization. Abel, Abraham came from Sumeria. He came from Ur of the Chaldees. That's where he was called from, which is a city in Babylonia, which is also ancient, ancient Sumer. So, so the Epic of Gilgamesh, it, it can't be lightly dismissed. How that gives us insight into these words in Genesis chapter 3, in, in verse five, verses 5 and 6. And, and in the Epic of Gilgamesh, the harlot who, who plays the role of the seductress is described in terms that we would use to describe fruit, her ripeness, she bared her ripeness, and, and things like that. So, so that also... It is um, enlightening in the aspect in which that that, that this um, object of desire is described as a tree, and what evade is imagined to be fruit later on. But but it's all euphemism 
describing a sexual awakening and, and, and the act of, of, of seduction, sexual seduction. Now, we also established last week that to eat, to touch, right from, from Clifton M. Heiser's papers, um, special notice to, deny, to all who are denied to seed line part five, I believe it was, and um, Clifton demonstrated from mainstream commentaries, Matthew Henry, Adam Clark, that those men admitted that the words eat and touch were used of sexual innuendo in Proverbs and, and some of the other scriptures. However, none of them brought it back to Genesis chapter 3, which is unfortunate. And that reminds me of some, somebody quoted it on my forum today, that that reminds me of the words of Paul, where he said that when he was a child, he thought like a child. But now he was a man, and it was time to think in, in a more grown-up aspect. The, and, and one thing we discussed last week about this was that the mainstream sects and denominations, well, well they, they must have... It's the, only, it's the only scenario that I could... Um, that, that could make sense to me is that they must have invented this Apple story for children, and, and then the real story was forgotten. The real story was forgotten. The adults still believe the Apple story that they learned as kids because they didn't want to deal with teaching their children that this was indeed about sex. And we demonstrated that from much apocryphal literature as well as the language itself last week. So... With this, I would like to proceed with Genesis chapter 3 and discuss that before we get to um, our real goal tonight, which is Genesis 4.1. You were saying? Well, I was just going to say that seems to be a common theme in societies throughout the history of the world. The older generations that don't want to speak about sex and they just want to pretend it's not happening, although obviously it is or else none of us would be here. Well, well, right. We've always shielded our children from the realities of the harsh realities of uh, of society with nursery rhymes and things like that. And and there are lessons, and and that's a whole topic unto itself. There are a lot of lessons in grim fairy tales and and nursery rhymes which apply to real life. Uh, I mean, the ogres under the bridge in the medieval fairy tales were really the damn Jew toll collectors. That, right. that, bought the rights to the roads from the princes and, and, and would do unseemly things with, with children crossing bridges. So, so those, that ogre under the bridge story was actually created to keep the kids away from the bridges where the Jews were. And, and I have no doubt about that. And, and likewise with stories like Rumpelstiltskin and Hansel and Gretel, that they were... Um, created to instill fear in the hearts of children that, that they wouldn't go into the homes of, of, of those um, certain peoples, right? Right, and, and the, um, the, the vampire stories out of Eastern and Southern Europe in the Balkans, those are all just allegories for Jews, I believe. Absolutely. And, and the Jews have turned it around and made Vlad the Impaler the bad guy, and, and they call him Dracula, but he was the good guy, and, and he was impaling the damn Jews and, and the Turks as a sign that they shouldn't come into his land. Right, because you call him Vlad the Great. Absolutely. In, 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 a, in the real world, he would be called Vlad the Great. No doubt. Well, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made 
themselves aprons. And here is where the discussion left off in the last segment of the series where Adam and Eve are portrayed as attempting to cover the scene of the crime, so to speak. When we do something wrong, we want to hide the source of our guilt, especially when children do something wrong. We shall not dwell any further upon what we have previously presented, but we will continue now with the Genesis chapter 3 account, where Yahweh God is portrayed as having discovered their crime and dispenses his judgment upon the guilty fathers, upon the guilty parties. I'm not going to elaborate too much on this. However, you've already read verse 8. If, if you want to read it again, I, I have several comments to make on it. I don't know if you have anything in particular you'd like well, to say. About. Comments on the punishment that's coming up, but not comments specific to verse 8. But I will repeat 8. Well, well, heard, important, it's important to get this straight, right? Right. And they heard the voice of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. And, and and with this, a lot of people say, well, they couldn't have been hiding amongst wooden trees. They must have been trying to blend in with people, right? And, and I've heard that story, and I want to take another look at the passages which discuss the trees of the garden. Because there are diverse opinions in this area, and we, I don't think we've handled it sufficiently thus far. So first, I will present the three most pertinent passages which are most relevant to this discussion. Genesis 2.9. Adam's placed into the garden in Genesis 2.8. And Genesis 2.9 says, And out of the ground made Yahweh God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of, in the, midst of the garden and the... <coughs> Excuse me. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's the first passage. There's one other. And the woman said unto the serpent, Genesis 3, verses 2 and 3, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the, tree, of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden. God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And, and that's clearly a reference to that Genesis 2.9, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Eve is repeating words that Adam must have told her about that tree. Then we have Genesis 3.8, where we see that Adam and Eve are hiding themselves amongst the trees of the garden. Now, I have a few things to say about this because different people want to assert different things from this. I've heard people assert that these are the other races. If the fruit trees of Genesis 2.9 are interpreted as being allegories for people at all, they cannot be Adamic people unless the illustration intends to indicate all of, the, all of the coming descendants of Adam, as the allegory is used later in Scripture, as we pointed out, such as at Ezekiel chapter 31, where the, the nations of the Oikumene are described as trees in the Garden of God, right? Yet those Adamic people at this point have not yet arrived where we are at in this narrative in Genesis 3.8. Furthermore, 
if the fruit trees are interpreted as being allegories for people, Yahweh God would be encouraging race mixing if they are not Adamic people. And at this point, there are no other Adamic people. Or at least he would be encouraging a violation of the bonds of marriage between Adam and Eve if they were imagined to be other Adamic people created by God that Eve could eat from where they are mentioned in Genesis 3.2. Furthermore, as we discussed at great length in the first segment of this series of programs, the scripture does not support the idea of other Adamic people created by God aside from Adam and then his descendants. Since Yahweh God would never encourage either fornication or adultery, then the trees of the garden which Adam and Eve were permitted to eat from were indeed literal fruit trees. Therefore, only the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, those trees which are explicitly distinguished from the other trees here, only those trees are to be understood as allegories for races of people. Since there are not yet any Adamic people accepting Adam and Eve, then if the trees which Adam and Eve hid among in Genesis 3.8 are interpreted as being people, that's fine, as some people would assert. That's fine. But they can only be the people of one tree. They can only be the people of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yet the context does not insist that we understand this in that manner. And it is possible that they are literal fruit trees that they are portrayed as hiding themselves among. So they're either, they're not other Adamic trees. They're either trees of wood bearing fruit, or they're trees, if you want to interpret this Genesis 3.8 as referring to people, they have to be trees or branches, I should say, from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Either of these interpretations represent the only rational ways to interpret this scripture without conjecture. Do you have any comment? Well, who are the people that want to claim that they're hiding amongst individuals, you know, bipedal humans? Well, there are people that make that um, that claim. The, the chief culprit is from the Jewish quarter of Christian identity, or, or as Mark Downey likes to say, the plug nickel, right? But but um, I don't really want to mention them. All right. Well, I'm, I'm trying to understand. What would their motivation be? Would that just be another opportunity to squeeze other people into the garden and then creation who don't belong? The, the primary motivation would be to claim that there are other races in the garden that came from God that Adam and Eve are allowed to eat the fruit of. That's the motivation. The motivation is universalism. That's the motivation. And it's conjecture. that They're actually attributing to Yahweh God the permissiveness of either fornication or adultery in the New Testament terms, fornication being race missing and adultery being in the New Testament. And the way those terms are used in the New Testament, fornication is race missing and adultery is violation of the marriage vows. They're, they are attributing that permissiveness of those things to Yahweh when they claim 
that there were other trees that were races that Adam and Eve could eat from. Well, it seems like they're almost saying that there's a mandate then to engage in race mixing. If the other people, if these trees are just other people and they're there and Adam and Eve are told that you can eat from these trees, well, then that's a mandate then to engage in race mixing. And that's, that's how they obfuscate the scripture. But there were only two trees that were people here. The tree of life, which is Christ and his race, as we established early in the series, and we proved that from the end of Genesis chapter 3, without a doubt, from Genesis 3.22, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So if you want to say that Adam and Eve are hiding themselves among other trees in the garden, it has to be from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It has to be those people. It has to be those others. So Adam and Eve are going to try to hide around what other other races were there that the fallen angels must have created because Yahweh didn't create other races. But the fallen angels are attributed with all sorts of corruption of Yahweh's creation by this time. And we establish that. Right. That's why they're a tree. Well, if they're another race... Well, let me put it this way. If you and I had to hide in a crowd, it wouldn't go very well if we were hiding in a crowd of Somalians, would it? We wouldn't be hiding very long. So it just seems on the surface, if they're hiding amongst trees, and these trees are bipedal, non-white... I really know, think hiding amongst wooden trees, trying to hide because they're ashamed of what, they're do what they've done, and that's the, that's the picture being portrayed. Right, but that seems sensible and reasonable. There are some who insist that they're hiding amongst other people, and I'm only trying to demonstrate that if they are hiding against other people, if you want to interpret this in that manner, then those other people have to be of the race of the fallen angels and not of any race that God made. That's all I'm trying to do here. Right. And, and that is that interpretation, either of those two interpretations are possible, and either of those two interpretations that's the most important thing. Do not conjecture anything from what we've learned from Scripture thus far. There's no conjecture there in either of those two interpretations. All right. Verse 9, you want me to read it? You want to read it? All right. And Yahweh God said unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. Well, well let's stop there. You know, Yahweh God knew the cause of Adam's shame simply because Adam realized that he was naked. That's the way it's portrayed. Adam knew he was naked. Yahweh knew immediately what Adam did. And this is consistent only with the transgression of a sexual nature. If Adam had eaten an apple, perhaps he would have said, I have heartburn, or, or maybe I have a toothache. But this is only consistent with the transgression of a sexual nature. As soon as Adam said he was naked... God knew he ate of the tree that he wasn't supposed to eat from. Without hesitation. 
Right, and the punishment that's coming, of course, fits the crime, and I'll have a, a fair amount to say about that. Oh, absolutely. Verse 12, and the man said, the woman, the, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me in a tree and I did eat. First, let me quote 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, from the Christogenian New Testament, because the King James and other translations really dropped the ball on this, on, on the subject and the object and, and that stuff. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman had been thoroughly beguiled, and I could have written seduced there, but I didn't think I had to to prove my point. The woman had been thoroughly beguiled when the transgression occurred. If Adam was not deceived, then Adam sinned willfully. And yet, he seems to have wrongfully blamed the woman for his own sin as well here, rather than taking direct responsibility for it. So you're saying basically the, the first thing on his mind when God says what's going on, he says, oh, the woman screwed up and she tempted me. Absolutely. Well, well, yeah, the woman screwed up. It's her fault. The exact details of how Adam sinned, as we discussed at length last week, don't really matter. Simply accepting Eve after she had done such a thing would be grounds for his fall from disgrace since Adam clearly must have had the opportunity to reject her when she transgressed, but rather the woman gave to her, the, the, to, the, the woman gave to him of the tree, and, she, and, and he did eat. So he, he went along with her willfully and accepted her in her state of transgression. Verse 13. That's sufficient then, isn't it? And I believe it's also written that not only those who do such things, but those who take delight in them or those who approve of them. Isn't that in one of Paul's epistles when he's talking about sexual uncleanliness? Well, well, absolutely. So, so that's sufficient grounds. Sufficient grounds is also to accept your wife after she after she's to to accept your wife back after she's been with another man. Yahweh considers an abomination. That's in Deuteronomy chapter twenty-five in, in the opening verses, I believe. Right. That, so once she's gone off with another man, you can't take her back. And that's one of the few sins, sexual sins, that Yahweh explicitly states is an abomination to him. It is for your wife to go out and, and, and be with other men and then come back and you accept her. That, that's an abomination. Even though other sexual sins do call for stoning, that is explicitly said to be an abomination. So no, if, if your wife, if, if you divorce your wife and she goes with another man and two years later you decide you, wish, you miss her and you want her back and you take her back, that's an abomination. And if your, night goes, if your wife goes out one night and has a one-night fling and you find out about it and take her back, that's an abomination. You've got to put her out. And and she should probably do the same to, to men, but that that's you know, men use that as a license to screw around. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Eve admitted being deceived or seduced by the serpent. Adam should have put his wife away for the offense. However, once he accepted her, he was committed to her. 
and the punishments would be announced accordingly, it is apparent that the punishments were indeed befitting of their respective transgressions. Would you well, like As I pointed out, the, the punishments, well, do you want me to read it first and then comment? Be my guest. All right. And Yahweh God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel." Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And this is a good point, I think, to stop and get the commenting rolling. Well, I wanted to say, absolutely, the punishment fits the crime. If all they did was munch on some fruit, then God is a sadist, a monster, and a tyrant for causing them to die, cursing her womb making her bring forth children in sorrow and giving her a desire to continually want more and more children when it's going to be sorrowful and painful and they're going to die. So if all they did was eat a piece of fruit off some tree, then if this is the punishment, then God's a monster and he's unjust. And of course we know that can't be the case and that isn't the case. The punishment absolutely fits the crime. Absolutely. The the serpent, first let, let me start with the serpent. The serpent's not a snake. But these things should be interpreted allegorically. It is apparent that the serpent, once properly identified, once we see um, who the serpent really is throughout history, how this serpent's seed is traced down throughout history, the serpent indeed fulfilled this punishment for many centuries and still does because the serpent lives off of the sediment at the bottom of society. The, The serpent is a filthy entity which lives off of all the scum and refuse of of, of civilization. And and today the serpent is still here and and lives off of pandering and and all sorts of immorality and and usury and... and Filth. That's all the refuse, right? Well... What was it in the um, in Der Ewige Jude? It said that the Jews are not successful through their own hard work and efforts, but through usury, swindling, and fraud. Absolutely. The woman, the, the woman must have seed, Genesis 3.15, which is also the seed of her husband, right? The woman's seed is the husband's seed. They're the same seed, right? She's flesh of Adam's flesh and bone of his bones. And the, the serpent must have seed, Genesis 3.15. And this seed must be descendants. Now, let me say that, those descend, that, those, that seed is not necessarily limited to descendants, to descendants alone. Remember that the serpent is one branch or one leaf or one twig or however you want to quantify it, right? On the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the serpent's seed includes the entire tree, and the serpent's only one member of that tree at this time. And this seed, this serpent's seed, can clearly be identified in Scripture as the Bible follows both the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And history 
while history is centered around these two parties, in a biblical context, they are further narrowed down as we proceed through Scripture, and eventually they're narrowed down to the lives of Jacob and Esau, and there's a reason for that, because Esau has married himself into the serpent seed. We'd be getting ahead of ourselves to try to explain that here. In reference to verse 16 and, and the punishment fitting the crime, here it may be understood also where God said to the woman, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. He didn't say, he, he didn't necessarily mean her future conceptions with her husband. Under the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. And then he says, in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. Here it may be understood that Eve has already had a conception, and that it would cause her sorrow. Her conception, which she had as a result of her transgression, I would assert, would cause her sorrow, and in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. Why would she bring forth Does that? I don't believe that refers to the pain of childbirth. God designed the, the, the physical female body before the transgression. I believe that refers to the idea that because there's going to be a world of enmity between the serpent and the woman, that the, consistent, the, the constant warfare between the serpent and the woman, because of this transgression, would cause sorrow to the woman, allegorically cause sorrow to all women. Well, it'll certainly cause sorrow when the bastard child Cain murders the good child Abel. Well, well right, and Cain's been killing Abel now for 7,500 years. That's what I'm trying to say, right? And it did start with Cain and Abel. But there's been millions of Cains that have killed... Millions of Abel's. And that it keeps repeating itself. Every time, every time a white soldier dies on the battlefield for the wars of the Rothschilds, that's some Cain somewhere sitting in a, in a plush office who just killed another Abel. Or every time a white woman goes to abort a white child, Cain is killing Abel. Well, as you said, all of these punishments of Eve are related to childbirth right. and the bringing forth of children. And clearly the punishment fits the crime. And, and Yahweh God is not a tyrant once you understand the equity in, in, in crime and punishment and what this crime really was the punishment is just. Right. Well, if all they did was munch an apple, maybe he'd say your taste buds will, you know, wither away and no food will taste pleasing to you. Your stomach will turn and you'll have heartburn and indigestion. N none of that happened, though. It wasn't a food-related crime. It was a sex crime. Well, clowns like Ted Whelan would insist it was a thought crime. But there are no thought crimes in the Bible. There, there are no thought crimes. You can't find a thought crime in the Old a Testament. A thought crime? So how did Eve commit a thought crime? She thought about doing something? 
But there's no Christ. You know, Christ said that if you look at a woman and lust for her, you've already committed adultery. Well, that's fine. That's fine because what? Well, you're lusting and it's wrong. But there's no punishment for any thought in Scripture. There's no punishment for thought in the law. And that's what matters, is the law. You won't find, what, well, if a man thinks about this and comes up with this harebrained idea, he shall die or, or he shall be stoned. That's, no, the law, is, the, the law requires an actual act in order to affect the punishment. Right, so when David was sitting around lusting after Bathsheba, prior to actually taking steps towards fulfilling that lust, he hadn't really committed an offense. And if he had just left it at there, there wouldn't have been an offense. And the Apostle James, I believe it is, describes the stages of sin. And, 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 and does admit that it starts with a thought, but it's sin when it culminates with an actual act. And the act is worthy of punishment. Verse 17. Did you read that already? Mm, no, I, I don't believe I, we, we got to 17 yet. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake, in sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, Till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Now, now previously, Genesis chapter 2, right? Genesis chapter 2.8 and 2.9, previously Yahweh had caused trees to grow out of the ground for Adam, for food, for meat, and now Adam would have to toil for his sustenance. It seems that because Adam sowed an allegorical seed... And, and I'm going to go out on a limb a little bit here. It seems that because Adam sowed an allegorical seed by, by partaking in the sexual crime, right? And he is therefore being punished by having to sow his own literal seed in order to assure his survival. Although even the success of that relies upon the grace of God. And, and now I'm going to take that a step further. Taking this curse to be allegory and seeing Adam as a representative of the entire race, as in Adam all men die, as well as the individual, there is a whole other level of abstraction. Adam's descendants would subsequently mingle with thorns and thistles, and tares would be in the field of his descendants as well as we, all because of this transgression. And we see throughout later scripture and throughout the New Testament that the races rejected by God are described in these terms. In the sweat of thy face, thou shalt eat bread because the Adamic race mingled with the other races because the Adamic race mingled with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and because their children are consistently being destroyed because of it. The tares, the thorns, the thistles, that, that they've, like I said a few moments ago, Cain's been killing Abel, 
millions of times throughout history. So I think that this that this that this very literal looking punishment has a higher level of abstraction. It's really an allegory for the the fruit of Adam's loins down through history, what would happen to them. Right, and you mentioned thorns and thistles. Isn't that part of Matthew 13, too, when the sower is sowing seed and some of it winds up tossed amongst the thorns in the stony places? And, you know, finally the seed goes into the good ground. You know, the seed that's amongst the thorns, the people who, the cares of this world, lead them away. So if if you've sowed your seed amongst the thorns and the thistles, I think that's basically miscegenation, isn't it? Well, well, that, that's what I'm trying to say, right? That the allegories that Christ used in his parables had the same meanings that the allegories do, which we find here in Genesis 3. Maybe not all of them, but a lot of them do. And, and they're referring to the same thing. And the thorns and the thistles of the prophets, as Clifton pointed out in a recent paper, where, where Yahweh said that we, we wouldn't be able to go back to our original homeland, that he would, would hedge up our way with thorns. And that's a reference to all the Arab bastards surrounding Palestine, and every time we've tried to go back there, we couldn't last because the thorns and the thistles were too harsh for us, and, and they were too much of a pest, and we had to pull out. Look at the Crusades. Look at today. Today, our, our um, what? Well, NATO forces are, are in Iraq and Afghanistan fighting with thorns and thistles for the sake of serpents. Right. So there's another level of abstraction. It's not merely referring to agriculture. And perhaps if it weren't for the thorns and the thistles and the serpents, it would be a lot easier for a damnic man to sow his seed and raise his bread. Verse 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And I think there's a lot of confusion over this verse simply because a lot of people don't understand who the living are. There are people which are considered living. And there are people which are considered dead. There are people which are considered twice dead, even though perceptibly to us they're alive. And this is a racial message, which should not be misconstrued because our real life isn't in the flesh. Our real life is in the spirit. And if one has not the spirit of God, then one is not considered living in the scriptures. It's as simple as that. Eve is the mother of all those who would have the spirit of God. That's why Seth was so important, that he was in Yahweh's image. He was in his father's likeness and image. Uh, 
Ecclesiastes 3.21, who knows the spirit of man that goes upward and the spirit of the beast that goes downward to the earth. The Adamic spirit doesn't die, and therefore Eve is the mother of all who are truly living. Do you have any comments? Well, all those who are truly living are those who are born from above, not those who are of this world. Exactly. Well, you know, we can't create ourselves. So those who are of this world are not of the creation of God. They're a creation of the world, an artificial creation that God did not will into existence. And that's exactly what the Apostle John explains, as we discussed it a few weeks ago, in 1 John chapter 4. There right, are people well, born of God, and they're the Adamic race, the pure Adamic seed. Because their seed is in them, they cannot sin, he says in 1 John chapter 3. Because sin's not going to be imputed to him, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 10, quoting David in the Psalms. If you're born from above, you're one of the living. If you're born from below, I am from above, ye are from beneath. If you're born of the world, you're one of the dead, because Yahweh God did not create you. John, 1 John chapter 4. Right, and th think about what he told the Edomites, the Pharisees and Sadducees. He said, where I go, you cannot follow. He didn't say you shall not follow or you will not follow, as though to imply because you're bad people, you won't get to follow. If you would change your ways, then you could. He said you cannot follow, as in cannot, impossibility. It cannot happen. There is nothing you can do to change it. Absolutely, but he told the apostles they'd follow later, didn't he? <laughs> right. He he told them he was going to prepare a place for them. Verse 21. Unto Adam also, and to his wife, did Yahweh God make coats of skins and clothe them. Chastity and modesty are bedfellows. That's the only comment I have for that. It's all related to sexual transgression, and this expresses a future of chastity and modesty. You know, Eve was told, and and it's something I I need to go back to because I I I know you probably commented on you you commented on it, but Eve was told that thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Yet you know, if Eve's desire was to another then it makes sense that here Yahweh, after announcing her punishment, informs her that her desire shall be to her husband. Her desire must have been to that tree that was pleasant to the eyes and good for food, as we see, and, and as we've also seen, that's a sexual desire which was being fulfilled. Right, and now her desire is being turned down to a... A, a proper venue, let's say. Well, well, where it should have been, at, at that, where it should have always been, but now they have coats of skins, and God clothed them. Chastity and modesty are bedfellows. There's no doubt, and that that's the lesson here, and and that again demonstrates that this is a crime of a sexual nature. It's throughout Genesis 3. It's in every verse of Genesis 3, practically. 
And Yahweh God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Do you have any comments on this verse? I'm not certain. I've always wondered why the dilemma, you know, God is all-powerful. What does it matter if he takes of the tree of life and eats and lives forever? Couldn't God nullify that? Well, well the take the tree, take of the tree of life and eat and live forever nullifies the crime in the garden. Because Christ, uh, we, Adamic man, only has eternal life through Yahshua Christ, period. Therefore, Yahshua Christ, as we discussed earlier in this series, must be the tree of life. When we turn to the gospel, he says, I am the true vine. If he's saying, I am the true vine, then that means that there are vines walking around that are not the true vine. Right, by implication, there's a false vine. Right, and he says, I am the true vine, and you are the branches, and, and that you'll have life if you abide in me. And I can expound on, on that whole discourse, but I believe that also is a message which demands not only obedience to God, but also a, a, a maintenance of racial purity, not to intermarry with the false vine, and, and, and a lot of other things. But here we see that Christ must be the tree of life. Now, to take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, Joshua Christ being Yahweh God come in the flesh, we have to abide by the commandments of God. If we're going to grasp the tree of life, if you love me, keep my commandments. And amongst those commandments are demands not to commit race mixing or fornication which was obviously the crime here. Now, I believe Yahweh God, the, behold, the man has become of one of us. We see the divine counsel and, and the good angels. I mean, the good angels had to exist if they were fallen angels, right? Revelation chapter 12 tells us that a third of the angels fell from heaven. Well, we see there are good angels, which Yahweh created, which aren't mentioned explicitly at all in his creation. However, here we see the divine counsel, and, and that's what I would consider that to be. Now, the, the serpent informed the woman that she would, well, he told her that she wouldn't die. He only told her half a lie. And Yahweh says, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. If the man, the, the man has a choice, in other words, to follow after the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or to grasp the tree of life and to hold on to that, which are the commandments of God and, and, and Christ. And that's the way to life. Therefore Yahweh God sent him forth out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. And, and here, in my opinion, the garden represents the grace of God and the eternal state that Adam was created in, was originally in before his fall, when he realized he was naked, right? So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim, and the flaming sword which turned every way to keep 
the way of the tree of life. And I believe that this, that the cherubim and the garden are all allegorical. They're not literal. And the cherub does not prevent man from this garden. The cherub is placed, and, and this is a, a symbol, right? It's an allegory. The cherub ensures that the man has a way back to the garden. The cherub ensures that the path to the tree of life is maintained and protected so that the enemies of God would never be able to prevent man from it. The cherub assures that we all have redemption and salvation in Christ. And I suppose it would also prevent the enemy from trying to usurp the kingdom then. Well, right. The enemy has been trying to usurp the kingdom ever since Genesis chapter 3. Right, well... We're told the kingdom suffers from violence, and the violence sees it with force. Right. And the, the parable where the landlord sends his you know um, servants to collect you know what is due from the um, tenants who are in the vineyard, and they beat and kill some of the servants, and then he decides to send the heir, and they say, "There's the heir for the come. Let us kill him and seize on his inheritance." That's what's been going on since the beginning of our existence. They've been trying to kill us and seize our inheritance. Well, well, right, and you can read that in that allegory. that The kingdom suffers and the violence sees it with force, and Christ tells us in Luke chapter 16, verses 16 through 18, and I've written a paper on this very topic, he, he, as soon as he says that, he goes into a discourse on adultery, and, and all men, well, well, maybe not all men, but... All men are adulterers in one way or another, whether literal adulterers or metaphorical adulterers. At some time in our lives, we're all, none of us are clean from sin. However, Christ says, he divorcing his wife and marrying another commits adultery, and he gives that discourse on adultery not because he takes a sudden break and changes the topic and wants to to, to moralize on marriage. He gives that discourse on adultery because he is married to the children of Israel. Yahweh God is married and has promised and divorced Israel and promised through the prophets, Hosea, Hosea chapter 2 explicitly, 2.12 I believe, to betroth himself to Israel once again because even though Israel committed sin, He will not be an adulterer found married to another. Right, so he's saying that he's not going to take another wife. Therefore, he's saying he's not going to take another wife, and those violent ones who were trying to squeeze squeeze themselves into the kingdom and seize it by force, he's not going to be found married to them. Their, Their efforts are going to fail. And that's what he's teaching in Luke 16. Their efforts are going to fail because he is going to be married to Israel. And that's it, period, none other. So, so that, that's an assurance. But that cherub which guarded the way to the tree of life it is an indication for us that we cannot lose our salvation, that we will have salvation through Christ, regardless of the devices of the enemy. And that's why all Israel will be saved.
And as Isaiah chapter 45 says, all the seed of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. For that reason, for the glory of God, not because we deserve to be released from, from the sins and the highest crimes that many of us have committed and, and the sins which we've, which we've committed. We don't deserve salvation. We're going to be saved for the sake of the word of God. And Paul explains that throughout his epistles. So, so that's a different topic for another night. Now I would like to proceed with Genesis chapter 4 with verse 1. I don't know how far we're going to get into this tonight. We, we don't have a whole lot of time left. If you would like to read Genesis 4.1. All right. Well, I just wanted to comment real quick on Hosea. You mentioned Hosea chapter 2. If I recall, in Hosea 2.4, isn't it written, I will not have mercy upon her children, for they are the children of whoredom. So, so much for all the people going back to wherever they came from. I mean, the children of whoredom have to be understood in a biological sense, don't they? Well, well, I mean, that that whole idea that bastards and other races can be saved, only a Jew would come up with that garbage. Uh, I mean, it's totally unscriptural, and it's probably a topic for another night. Right. It sounds like something the serpent would say in the garden. Genesis 4. And Adam knew his wife, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Do you have Genesis 4, a lot of Christians want to take it, <clears throat> take it for what it is and, and insist that it's true. And I understand that it's difficult to simply dismiss any verse of Scripture, and I don't do it lightly. But Genesis 4, 1, first has no second witness anywhere in Scripture. I challenge anybody to show me a second witness to Genesis chapter 4. Well, I can show you a witness against it if you can answer one simple question. Is Adam the wicked one? Well, well right. We're going to come up with plenty of witnesses against it, but there's no second witness to Genesis 4.1 that shows that Adam is father is the Cain, the father of Cain. There's no second witness anywhere in... in uh, I mean, I haven't read all the apocryphal literature. I'm not all that, believe me. I've read almost all of it. There's no second witness in the apocryphal literature that Adam is the father of Cain. And there are many witnesses in apocryphal literature that, that, that demonstrate that Adam is not the father of Cain. There's no second witness in the Bible in any language that Adam is the father of Cain. None. There's no second witness. I'm not going to base a doctrine on one scripture and insist that it's true. I'm not going to do it, especially Genesis 4.1, because when it's looked into, Genesis 4.1, the Hebrew of the verse is demonstrably corrupt. And, and Clifton has quoted them often, and, and I'm going to quote them again here tonight. The Interpreter's Bible. The Interpreter's Bible is a 12-volume collaborative work of 36 consulting editors plus 124 other contributors. And it makes the following observation, and I'm quoting from Clifton Emma Heiser's paper, The Problem with Genesis 4.1. 
makes the following observation on this verse in volume one on page 517, and I quote, Cain seems originally to have been the ancestor of the Kenites. I would attest to that. The meaning of the name is metalworker or smith here. However, it is represented as a derivation of a word meaning acquire or get. One of the popular etymologies frequent in Genesis. Hence, the mother's words, I have gotten a man. Then it goes on to say that from the Lord, as the King James Version has it, is a rendering following the Septuagint and Vulgate of F. Yahweh, which is literally with Yahweh. And so unintelligible here, the help of, as the RSV provides, is not in the Hebrew, the phrase, the help of. It seems probable that F should be off, so the mark of Yahweh, and that the words are a gloss. Well, well they're trying to come up with the, how this verse could be corrupt, and that's how they explain it, but they attest that the words are a gloss. There's a problem with the Hebrew grammar in Genesis 4.1. Now, that by itself is not conclusive, but I would demand a second witness because we have many witnesses against the idea that Adam is the father of Cain. And Christ himself is one of those witnesses in John chapter 8, and, and we'll get into that shortly. To continue quoting Clifton's paper, secondly, the interpreter's one-volume commentary on the Bible edited by Charles M. Lehman makes the following comment on this passage on page 6. Under the circumstances, under circumstances which are obscure, verse 1b, meaning the second half of, of Genesis 4.1, can scarcely be translated, still less understood. His younger brother was named Abel, which suggests the Hebrew word for breath. And Clifton goes on to say that, therefore, if Genesis 4.1 is unintelligible and can scarcely be translated, still less understood, how can one prove anything by quoting it? Additionally, if the words are a gloss, where is the foundation for such a premise? It should then be quite obvious that we need to look somewhere else for the answer. Fortunately, we do have other sources, but these, there are those who refuse to allow them in spite of the corrupted Hebrew, meaning the corrupted Hebrew of Genesis 4.1. Now, Clifton goes on to, um, to discuss the fact that people who are opposed to this message claim that the Targums are Jewish sources, and according to them should be discredited along with and including the Talmud. And Clifton goes on to say that inasmuch as the Torah and the Old Testament are the first volume of the Talmud, then by their perverted line of reasoning we should have, dis we should have to discard the entire Old Testament from our Bibles. And he says that first, in the Aramaic Targum, Aramaic was merely one of the languages which, which the Messiah and his disciples knew, called Pseudo-Jonathan on Genesis 3.6, which is unique inasmuch as it identifies the angel Samael as the serpent. Now, before I read this, this Aramaic Targum of Pseudo-Jonathan, let me make my own comments. I do not consider Targums canonical. 
There's no way that one should consider these targums canonical. And there's a lot of material in these targums which would definitely make a Christian reader of Scripture scratch his head. The targums are translations, and not all targums are of the same value. The targums are interpretations of the Hebrew Scripture, which were made at an early time. I mean, some of them do date to, to before Christ. Now, I don't accept, expect them, I don't accept them to be canonical because they are simply the interpretations of Scripture recorded by early Judeans. I won't call them Jews because we don't know if they're Jews, if they're Israelite Judeans, or if they're Edomite Judeans. We don't know that. Where the Targum of Genesis 4.1 has value is this. It clearly demonstrates that early Hebrew readers understood that there was a problem with Genesis 4.1, and therefore they attempted to fill in the blanks for themselves. That's where the Targums have value. Now, that may not be much value. You know, you don't have to think that that's conclusive. However... We have three things here. We have Genesis 4.1, as we have it, which insists that, which states that Adam is Cain's father, but it has no second witness anywhere in Scripture. That's the first thing we have here. We have many apocryphal and New Testament statements indicating that Adam was not Cain's father. That's the second thing we have here. And then we have the Aramaic Targums, where early Judeans clearly saw a problem with Genesis 4.1 and attempted to fill in the blanks for themselves. So we have three witnesses right there. The Genesis 4.1 is not legitimate as it reads today. Do you want to comment on that? Well, I have a few comments concerning the origins of Cain in so much as where he's getting his wife. And I have a reading from the Talmud, but I, I don't think it's appropriate to bring this in right now. But I have it here, and I'll, I will be bringing it in shortly. Suffice to say, just on a logical, philosophical level, just because Adam knows Eve and she conceives and bears Cain, well... You know, I, I go to bed in two hours, and then in eight hours the sun rises. You know, one doesn't make the other happen. Or I wash my vehicle in the driveway, and ten minutes later it rains. Well, washing my vehicle didn't cause it to rain. So just because he goes to bed with Eve, and then she bears Cain, it doesn't mean he fathered Cain. You know, the one doesn't naturally follow the other, necessarily. A doesn't necessarily have, you know, B doesn't have to follow A in this instance. Well, well... You could look at it that way. I don't think we have to. Uh, I think that the three points that I raised are, are plenty enough to make one um, realize, I would hope, that you can't rely on Genesis 4.1 alone if you're going to assert that Adam is the father of Cain. Right. 
Well, it also fails to mention begat. You know, the Bible seems to like the term begat when someone's actually begatting someone. You know, Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, etc., etc., etc. It probably uses the word dozens of times. It doesn't even say Adam begat Cain. It just says Adam knew his wife, she conceived and bare Cain. And as you said, there's no second witness anywhere. Well, we're going to pick this topic up. I'm, I'm going to read these targums tonight, but we're going to continue specifically with Genesis 4.1 next week, and we're going to fully elucidate that Adam could not have been the father of Cain, not only from the words of Christ, but from the words of Jude, from the words of Peter, and, and many places in the New Testament. Let me read these Aramaic Targums. There's two of them. There's the Aramaic Targum called Pseudo-Jonathan, and then there's the Palestinian Targum. The Palestinian Targum, the rendering is much more conservative. But what these prove is that early Judeans realized there was a problem with Genesis 4.1, and they tried to fill in the blanks. I'm not saying that the writers of the Palestinian Targum may not have had a better copy of Scripture. That is also a possibility, because it's very clear from my studies of, of, of Hebrew and Greek in the, in the first century that Josephus and some of the Bible, some of the apostles who, who wrote our Bibles clearly had a better copy of the Hebrew Scriptures than we have ever had in the Masoretic text. Josephus clearly had a much more complete copy of the Hebrew Scriptures to work from than we have in the Masoretic text. Without a doubt, the Septuagint translators had a better copy of the Hebrew Scriptures than what we have in the Masoretic text. Now, the Masoretic text has its value, but it certainly can't be upheld as an authority on Scripture. And this verse, Genesis 4.1, is wanting in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it's, in the Septuagint, it's basically in its same corrupt form as it is today in, in, in the Masoretic text. It, it, it must have already been corrupted by then. And, and let me state in that light that even though the Septuagint was based on a better copy of the Hebrew Scriptures in the Masoretic text, we have to bear in mind that a lot of the apocryphal literature re represents grassroots belief outside of officialdom of the temple. And the Septuagint, even the Septuagint, represents the official um, Judean government version of Scripture. Let me put it that way. The Targum called Pseudo-Jonathan in the Targum called Pseudo-Jonathan, Pseudo this is the version of Genesis 4.1 presented there. And a woman saw Samael, the angel of death, and she was afraid and knew that the tree was good for food, and that it was a remedy for the enlightenment of the eyes, and that the tree was also to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate and also gave it to eat with her husband, and he ate. I'm sorry, that's Genesis 3.7. Here's the pseudo-Jonathan Targum on Genesis 4.1. And Adam knew that his wife Eve had conceived from Samael, the angel of death, and she became pregnant and bore Cain. So we see that the Targum of Jonathan names this rebellious angel Samael as the seducer of Eve and as the father of Cain. And she became pregnant and bore Cain, and he was like those on high and not like those below. 
And she said, I have gotten a man from the angel of the Lord. Now, that could very well be an embellishment from, uh, I believe, the pseudo-Jonathan Targum dates at least to the second century A.D., and it's, it could be older. I'm, I'm, my, my memory fails me, and I didn't research it for this program. However, that could be an embellishment, but it shows that one early Judean was attempting to fill some of the blanks in in the Genesis 4, Genesis 3 and 4 story. The Palestinian Targum, to me, is, is, is um, a lot more conservative. And Adam knew his wife Eve, who had desired the angel. And she conceived in bare Cain, and she said, I have acquired a man, the angel of the Lord. So we see the Palestinian Targum took a more conservative approach at trying to fill some of the blanks in. That's the way I see these Targums. Now, Clifton also quotes a rabbinical work from a rabbi, Perk de Eliezer, and it says, and she saw that his likeness was not of earthly beings, but of the heavenly beings, and she prophesied and said, I have known with this enlightenment, oh, I'm sorry, I, I don't believe I have the whole quote. I think I had a cut and paste problem. Just give me one second here. And she saw that this likeness was not of earthly beings, but of the heavenly beings, and she prophesied and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. So, so that's what we have in one rabbinical work and two Aramaic Targums. The Aramaic Targums, I believe they both date to at least as early as the second century AD. They're not canonical, I'll say it again, but they do reflect that early Judeans, and we can't really label these people as Jews, that early Judeans certainly tried to fill in the blanks with Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now, I'm going to quote, because Clifton also quotes it in his paper, and, and, and I've quoted this before. I'm going to quote something called the Protevangelion of James. This is from the Lost Books of the Bible and the Forgotten Books of Eden. This is not a Talmudic work. This is not a rabbinical work. This is an early Christian work. Whether it's canonical or not, really shouldn't even be a question. It doesn't matter if this is canonical or not. This work is definitely dated to at least as early as the second century AD, and it could very well be older than that. And I'm going to read from the Protevangelion of James, chapter 10, verses 1 through 7. You could find this in the Lost Books of the Bible and the Forgotten Books of Eden. That volume is still being published by Artisan Publishers at artisanpublishers.com. There are other copies of this extant. I, I don't have the sources in my head at the moment. From verse 1, this is in reference to Joseph and Mary in the birth of Christ. And when her sixth month had, was come, Joseph returned from building his houses abroad, which was his trade, and entering into the house, 
Sounds the virgin grown big. Joseph believed Mary to be a virgin when he was betrothed to her, which means engaged. Then smiting upon his face, he said, with what face can I look up to the Lord my God? Or what shall I say concerning this young woman? For I received her, a virgin, out of the temple of the Lord my God, and have not preserved her as such. Joseph was taking the blame upon himself. Who has thus deceived me? Who has committed this evil in my house, and seducing the virgin from me has defiled her? Is not the history of Adam exactly accomplished in me? For in this very instant of his glory, the serpent came and found Eve alone and seduced her, just after the same manner it has happened to me. And there we see an early Christian work which equated the angel and the conception of Mary while she was betrothed to Joseph the good angel, of course, the angel of Yahweh, to the evil angel and the seduction of Eve when she was supposedly the wife of Adam. As we quoted the works of Maccabees, for Maccabees and, and other sources from Paul of Tarsus's letters last week to establish that Paul of Tarsus definitely believed that Eve lost her virginity in the seduction of Genesis chapter 3, and the authors of 4 Maccabees, which is not a Talmudic work, not at all, also believed that the serpent spoiled Eve's chaste virginity. So, so this is um, not a Talmudic idea. It's found in early Christian literature, as well as early Judean literature, where we see that even authors of Aramaic Targums understood that there was something amiss with Genesis 4.1. Do you have any closing comments? Well, only the basic question I posed, you know, the evangelicals never have an answer, is Adam the wicked one? And when they say, well, what do you mean by that? And I say, well, you know, 1 John 3.12, it's in your paper here, and we've discussed it before. Be not as Cain, who was of the wicked one. And normally they want to spiritualize it, because none of them want to come out and say, well, oh, yes, of course, Cain is Adam's son, and Adam's the wicked one. I mean, who's going to say Adam is the wicked one? You'd have to be a perverse monster or some sort of delusional fool to claim Adam is the wicked one, but... That, that, to me, is one of the most important witnesses that destroys Genesis 4.1. Well, well, absolutely. And, and next week we will pick up right here with Genesis 4.1. We might give a brief summary of some of the things we said here tonight, but we will demonstrate from Luke chapter 11 and John chapter 8 that Adam could not have been the father of Cain. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for listening, everybody. We will be here next week with Genesis chapter 4. And I may have some wisdom from the Talmud. Wonderful. <laughs> I don't know about wisdom, but... Oh, well, that's just a content warning. The Talmud may be quoted next week. Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh.